Well, 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 welcome back to the Whole Healing Podcast Season 2, you guys. I am so excited about this episode today because we are talking with one of my favorite human beings in the whole world, my dad, about the coolest topic in the world of mental health these days. It's sublingual ketamine. Ketamine has been used intravenously for people with severe depression, and they're noting exponential improvement in mental health status and measures. However, now they're actually taking that IV ketamine and making it into these little sublingual trochies that you put underneath your tongue. You go through this kind of like interesting experience. And then in the long term, they're showing profound improvements in not just mental health, but neurological function. I mean, you guys, I don't think we're even ready for what this stuff is about to do for this country and the world in general, as far as neurologic disease, MS, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, ALS. You guys, I can't wait for you to listen to this episode. It is so interesting and informative, and it's really exciting to know that this stuff is at our fingertips and that it can help us through our mental well-being and challenges so that we can live a better life mentally and just be happier, right? Stay tuned. I hope you enjoy this podcast. It's short and sweet, but man, is it potent and powerful. All of the love. The Whole Healing Podcast. Healing through nutrition by connecting your mind, body, and food. Yeah, Vermont sticks, turkey, pepperoni sticks. And they're really good because they don't have any like nitrates or nitrates in them. Yeah, they're good. So my education is I went to Arizona State University where I got a bachelor's degree in biology in 1981. Didn't know that. Yep. And then went to the University of Colorado School of Medicine and studied medicine Um, and graduated in 1985 and decided to become a psychiatrist. Went in thinking I would do sports medicine or orthopedic surgery, maybe even emergency medicine. Then I found out there is no sports medicine in those days. And I fell in love with psychiatry because... The books that I was reading at the time were about consciousness and altered states of consciousness. And I didn't know that could be part of psychiatry. When I discovered it could, then I decided I wanted to be a psychiatrist. So after medical school, I went to the University of California, Irvine for my internship and residency and studied a field called transpersonal psychology with Roger Walsh, which is an area of psychology that looks at everything from Eastern philosophy to uh, near-death experiences, to shamanism, to psychedelics, to just about anything that induces altered states of consciousness. And then after that, finished residency, moved back to Colorado in 1985, started a um, practice of psychiatry and became interested in writing and first wrote us a paper about inner voices and the different kinds of inner voices that people hear and how to distinguish the helpful voices of uh, mystics and scientists and artists from the pathological voices or hallucinations of uh, people who are mentally ill. And that led me to take a trip to South America to work with shamans who heard voices that were helpful. And from there, everything changed. 
Wow, that was before I was even born. That's amazing. There's so many th- questions I want to ask you about ketamine, but before we get started, so so just so everybody kind of has a point of reference, like let's talk about like neurons because I think when people think about neurons, I have like a neuron necklace, and everyone's like, "Is that a tree?" And I'm like, "No, it's not. It's not a tree, but it looks like a tree." But but I don't think people really know what neurons are. So can you can you explain to me like what exactly are are neurons because they're not the same as our brain cells, or, or are they? Well, some of the brain cells are neurons. So neurons are simply nerve cells. There are different types of nerve cells, but they're the primary type of nerve cells in the central nervous system, which makes up the brain and the spinal cord, and then the peripheral nervous system, which is the nerves that go to the arms and legs. Okay. And so they're one type, major type of cell in the nervous system. So so brain cells are neurons, but all not all neurons are necessarily brain cells? Um, not all brain cells are neurons, and not all neurons are brain cells. Really? So we have nerve cells. We have neurons in the brain, in the spinal cord, in the peripheral nervous system, but there are other kinds of cells in the nervous system too, like astrocytes and glial cells, support cells. Okay. Do we have neurons in the heart? Yes. There are nerve cells that run to the heart from other parts of the body, like the vagus nerve, that's a neuron. Um, Sympathetic nerves or neurons, parasympathetic nerves, those all go to the heart. And then within the heart, there are what are called intracardiac. They're not truly nerve cells. They're heart cells that conduct electricity though. Oh, interesting. Why are they not truly nerve cells? Why are they not nurses? Because they're they're different. They're they're muscle cells that conduct electricity. Okay, so those are neurons. Yes. And then what are what are synapses? Synapses are connections between neurons. So um, nerve cells communicate with one another by sending chemical messages across small gaps between nerve cells. So the nerve cells, the ends of them don't actually touch. They're very very close together. Um, and that connection between those two nerve cells is called a synapse. And so when an electric current comes down one nerve cell, instead of jumping across that small, it's called a synaptic cleft, that little gap between the nerve cells, it releases chemical messengers called neurotransmitters that attach to the next nerve cell and generate a new electric current that gets transmitted down the next neuron. And there's all these things, like all these chemicals in between the neurons and the nerve cells, like calcium, acetylcholine all these neurotransmitters, right? And like also like um, like helpers, neurotrans, like, uh, well, I guess, so when I think of like what's in between the cells, it's like dopamine, serotonin, calcium, um, GABA, like all these different chemicals. Are right. they all neurotransmitters? Those are those are neurotransmitters. Yeah, not all chemicals are neurotransmitters, but those are the neurotransmitters are chemicals or molecules that leave one neuron and float over to the next neuron and attach to receptors or proteins on that one to generate an either generate a new electric current or reduce the likelihood of a new electric current mm. being propagated down the next nerve cell. And so, and like, does, cal- I guess like where I'm at is like from a nutritional perspective, like calcium, for example, calcium helps like serotonin, dopamine transport it from one cell to the next in between this in, in the space. Like, how does that work? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> calcium, yeah, calcium is not generally considered a neurotransmitter, but it is important because we have calcium in the extracellular space that when some of these protein channels open, calcium flows into the nerve cells and then it has other effects on the nerve cell. Okay, cool. So that's like our neuro neurochemistry, neurobiology for the day. Okay. <laughs> um, so talk to me about ketamine. What is what is ketamine? So ketamine is a medicine or a molecule that was first discovered in the 1960s. There were some scientists at a pharmaceutical company called Park Davis that were looking for a medicine that could be used as a general anesthetic to put people to sleep for surgery. 
because the anesthetic they had was not working very well and it was causing problems. So they were giving PCP, which is also a street drug called angel dust um, on the streets, but in the in the operating room, it's called fincyclidine. Um, and so they needed an alternative to that where people wouldn't wake up from surgery so agitated. So they synthesized a medicine that was similar in structure to fincyclidine called ketamine. And when they tried it, they found that it worked very well as an anesthetic agent. And when people woke up from surgery, they weren't so confused and agitated. Sometimes they felt like they were floating out of their body a little bit, or they couldn't feel their arms or legs. So when the scientist who dis one of the scientists who discovered this went home and told his wife about it, she said, it sounds like a dissociative anesthetic, like people are dissociating from their bodies. And that name stuck. So ketamine is considered a dissociative anesthetic. And that's the way it was viewed since the 1960s. It continues to be used in operating rooms today. An interesting side note is in the year 2020, some scientists in Brazil were looking for a natural treatment for parasites. And they were out in nature looking for different substances and they found one that killed parasites and it was a mold. And they took that mold back to the lab to see what it was producing and it was producing ketamine. So it was discovered that ketamine is also a natural substance that occurs in nature and it kills parasites at the certain doses as well as being a general anesthetic. So wait, there's a mold that produces as a like a byproduct ketamine? It just produces. I don't know if it's a byproduct. It produces ketamine, though. It just produces ketamine. Yeah. It's a mold. That's fascinating. Yes, I know. It's wild. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So, so that was how ketamine was developed originally, synthesized in the lab initially, then discovered to occur naturally in nature. And it was used as a general anesthetic since 1970. And then in around the year 2000, around that time, some scientists and doctors discovered that if they used sub-anesthetic doses, lower doses that don't induce anesthesia and give it intravenously, people who are depressed rapidly felt better. Sometimes within hours, they would feel better. Their depression would improve. And so they began using intravenous ketamine to treat depression. And so for the last 20 to 25 years, ketamine clinics are popping up all over now where people can go and have a, a treatment of intravenous ketamine and it rapidly can improve their depression. That's incredible. So that was the discovery from about 20, 25 years ago. More recently, they're discovering ketamine works for many other things. And that's the exciting thing now that yeah. we're looking into. And that's why we're here today, because I want right. to know. I want to know. So like, so, and we've had conversations, maybe what we should do, and, I, and I've had, I've, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but I want people to really understand this, this beautiful, wonderful compound that like is produced in many different ways, but also ketamine um, produces it, BDNF. Can you talk to me about BDNF? Sure. So BDNF stands for brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And what that means, it's a protein that is made primarily in the brain. It's thought, or at least that's where it's first discovered. So it's brain-derived from the brain. Neurotrophic means it stimulates the growth of nerve cells or neurons. And so BDNF is like miracle growth for the nervous system. It, when applied to the nervous system, the nerve you uh, generate new nerve cells and the nerve, nerve cells that exist grow new branches like branches on a tree so it sprouts new branches that can connect with other nerve cells so it stimulates the growth and healing and repair of the nervous system wow and like okay so so that's cool because like we know what it does like from a an, like a, an anatomical position right? right but like what does that mean for us when it comes to like real world application that's a good question well one of the things that was discovered once ketamine started being used for depression is it works for many other things too and so when people would be prescribed ketamine, um, they would say, yes, my depression's better, but these other things have gotten better too. Now, this was even more pronounced in the last few years because um, also around 2020, some doctors began using very low doses of ketamine 
sublingually or under the tongue and discovered that if they used it sometimes once or twice a week, or their patients did, that their depression would get better. But also other things started to improve too, like anxiety started to improve. And then just more recently here in our area in Carl Springs, um, Dr. Rachel Wilkinson discovered that when she prescribed it to her patients on a daily basis, they started reporting all kinds of improvements in all kinds of different disorders, depression, anxiety, PTSD, um, many other psychiatric disorders improved as well. And then we started seeing improvement in neurologic disorders too. Things like peripheral neuropathy, people would report my pain is gone. Um, one gentleman had ringing in his ears after COVID. He lost his smell and taste after COVID. And for seven months, they were gone. And once he started the ketamine, the ringing in his ears went away and his smell and taste returned. So it repaired the nervous system that had been caught, apparently repaired the nervous system damage that had been caused by the COVID virus. Um, we're finding it helps with many, many other neurologic and psychiatric disorders too. And we believe that one possible reason for that is that the BDNF is being stimulated by the ketamine, which is healing or repairing the nervous system. And then the resultant effect is improvement in psychiatric and neurologic disorders. So that's freaking genius. Um, okay. And and I think like that's, you bring up a really good point because it's it's definitely clear like the literature is there that like COVID damages our neurological system. Yes. What else damages our neurological system? Lots of things like inflammation is a big one. So in psychiatry for years, we have believed that psychiatric conditions like depression, anxiety, et cetera, were caused by chemical imbalances in the brain, deficiencies of certain chemicals. This was called the monoamine hypothesis, which means certain chemicals that, that are labeled monoamines like serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, if those levels got too low, it was believed that that was the cause of these psychiatric conditions. And if you raise those chemicals, the levels of them, the psychiatric conditions would improve. And that's been the basis for our um, antidepressants, our anti-anxiety medicines, our anti-psychotic medicines for decades. Well, there's a newer theory that says that these conditions are actually caused by inflammation, not deficiencies of chemicals. And that if we can repair that inflammation, these psychiatric disorders like depression, anxiety, ADHD, et cetera, improve. And we're starting to see that with medicines like ketamine, that it's actually um, leading to improvement in these conditions. And one of the leading theories is that it's because it's stimulating BDNF and repairing the nervous system and the results of the inflammation in the nervous system. Wow. Okay. That makes sense to me. And from like a nutritional nutritionist standpoint, I feel like, you know, my, my brain's out. Okay. What causes inflammation? It's alcohol, it's ultra processed foods. Mm -hmm. um, it is stress, right? And oh. can we, can we talk about that for a second? Wait, Cause I don't think people believe me when I tell them like, Hey, if you're stressed, you're actually causing your body, like a lot of inflammation. Oh yeah. Cause stress, when we're under stress, our body produces certain stress hormones like cortisol, which is a steroid hormone, which suppresses the immune system and also leads to the release of what are called pro-inflammatory cytokines, chemicals that float between cells and initiate or propagate an inflammatory response. Okay. And so, and why does that matter for our immune system? Well, because if our immune system is underactive, we can't fight off infections as well or cancers because our body is constantly producing cancer cells that are generally kept in check by our immune system. And if our immune system isn't working well, then those cancer cells can break through um, or we cannot fight off infections as well. Okay. Or viruses, right? Viruses are one kind of infection. Yeah, viruses, bacteria, fungal infections, all kinds of infections. Okay. And there's a lot out there that we're always fighting against. We just don't realize it because our immune system is working. Continuously, hopefully. Hopefully it's working. We keep those things in check. 
Um, and if we, and so if we're under stress and our immune system isn't working as well, then we can get physically ill and psychiatrically, emotionally ill as well. Okay. So, okay. So ketamine, so, so basically what I'm hearing is that you're like, ketamine has been traditionally prescribed for depression and, and, and as an anesthetic, but now people are, there's self-reported, lots of self-reported incidences of other neurological improvements and observations. Right. It's also used a lot for pain. So its traditional uses was for anesthesia. And then the two most recent uses were for depression and pain control, um, which is interesting because we don't really know how it improves pain. We don't know is it by reducing inflammation because ketamine does reduce inflammation in the body. It also binds to opiate receptors, which is the body's natural pain uh, receptors, but that's not how it reduces pain, we know, because if you give a medicine that blocks um, those receptors and give ketamine, you still get pain relief. So there's some other unknown mechanism by which ketamine reduces pain. Mm. But yes, yeah, since we've been using ketamine to treat depression, we've discovered many, many other conditions that have improved as well, okay. neurologic and psychiatric. And so, and so maybe this is like a good time to talk about like off-label use and what right. is off-label use? Good. So off-label use means that there are medicines that we use in medicine that are approved by the FDA for one indication or one reason, but there's evidence showing they can help with other indications or other problems as well. And the FDA's guidelines say that if there are medicines that are approved by them that are found to work for other uses, doctors are allowed to prescribe them. That is called off-label, meaning we're using it for an indication other than what it's approved for. And that's done frequently in medicine. It's legal and it's okay to do it's that? It's totally legal. It's done all the time. We do it in psychiatry. We use medicines that are antidepressants that also treat anxiety. Um, in cancer treatment, they may approve a cancer treatment for one one medicine for one type of cancer, but it's effective for others. That's off-label use. So there are many things that are being used off-label, like right now, the Ozempic craze for diabetes. It's approved for diabetes, but people are using it for weight loss. That's off-label use. Okay. And there's nothing, I mean, are, are there are there any potential concerns with doing off-label use? Well, the concerns that are sometimes expressed are there's not as much research done on the use for use of that medicine for these other off-label indications. But for many of them, like ketamine, it's been around since 1970. So we've got over 70 years of use. So we have a pretty good handle on what the potential side effects and risks are. Um, and as long as we stay within those dosing guidelines that's been studied in the past, the, the risks are much less. Okay. So so when you say that there's other neurological diseases or uh, disorders or um, conditions that are that have that have the potential to be helped by ketamine in an off-label setting. What what are some of those examples? Sure. So one of the things that's been suggested, and there are some clinical trials looking at this, is what are called neurodegenerative diseases, which include things like ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, um, Parkinson's disease, um, dementias such as Alzheimer's disease, even multiple sclerosis. And so there are scientific papers written suggesting we should be exploring ketamine for some of those uses, and there are some ongoing studies right now looking at ketamine as a treatment for some of those conditions. Okay. And and where I, my mind's at too is like, even like, um, like spectrum. So autism, ADHD, do, are those in consideration as well? Uh, yeah. So there are people suggesting that the ketamine could help with autism, but I'm not aware of any studies yet. I don't know of any studies for ADHD, but I can tell you clinically that I have several people that I work with that are taking ketamine for depression and their ADHD symptoms have improved 
significantly. Wow. They're reporting a marked improvement in their ADHD symptoms with ketamine. That's incredible. Yeah, it's exciting. And and I guess... Even to the point that some people are getting off their ADHD medicines, they said they don't need them anymore. Wow. They're stopping their stimulants. They said, I just don't need them. The ketamine, since I've been on the ketamine, I'm able to focus so much better. I don't need that kind of medicine anymore. <laughs> That's incredible. Mm-hmm. And so like, how long does it take for ketamine to go into effect? So it depends on the dose again and, and what effect we're looking for. So if you take, uh, if you get IV ketamine, uh, at a higher dose, you can feel the effects within minutes um, as soon as the medicine is in your system. What we've been doing, Dr. Wilkins and I, and some additional doctors now in the area, Dr. Uh, Natalie Kunzman, Dr. Bert Liang, are using very low dose sublingual ketamine. It's such a low dose that you don't feel much of an effect immediately. Some people have mild uh, change in how they feel for maybe five minutes to an hour after they take the medicine where they feel a little bit relaxed, calm, a little bit floaty. Some people say, I feel like I've had a glass of wine. It's usually a very pleasant feeling. Most people like it. And then that goes away. But what's more pronounced is the change in how people feel over time, meaning over months. Months? Usually weeks to months. And it depends on the effects. Um, And it varies. I've had some people that respond very quickly. They feel improvement on the first dose. And within a month, they can go from severe depression to no, no depression, total remission within a month. That's unusual. Usually people start noticing some of the subjective effects, maybe four to eight weeks after they start ketamine. And then the benefits build from there. And the benefits continue to build over months, even over years, um, to the point that some patients, after they've been on ketamine for six to 12 months, start getting off other medications, not just ADHD medicines, but also antidepressants, anti-anxiety medicines, other types of psychiatric medicines they've been taking also. And then According to Dr. Wilkinson, who's been prescribing for almost four years, she says after sometimes three years or so on ketamine, people don't even need ketamine anymore. So they're able to get off all medications. That's ridiculous. It's crazy, but it's working. And I'm seeing it in my practice. I've only been prescribing it for a little over a year, but I have quite a few patients who've been able to get off um, their antidepressant medicines or ADHD medicines, and they're doing fine without them. That's unreal. That's unreal. So, okay. So a a lot of the time when I talk to people about ketamine or when people have like talk to me about ketamine, I, the, the topic always comes up of recreational versus therapeutic use, right. because I think like, and it's, it's a very different experience when you're in a, like an IV session with a clinical psychiatrist versus like at a nightclub with like smoking it. And so can you talk about like, cause I think people are under the impression that like, because there's so many benefits to it, they can just take it in a recreational setting and it'll have the same effects. Right. So there's several things at play there. First of all, <clears throat> the set and the setting in which people take a medicine like this has a huge impact. So it is very different if you take it um, like at a nightclub versus in a clinician's office. First, you don't know always the dose you're getting. And dose is critical with ketamine because if you take too much, you can die from it because it anesthetizes people. It puts them to sleep. They stop breathing and they die. So the amount that people take is important. Even if you don't die from it, you can take too much and develop a problem called excitotoxicity, which is a condition where you actually damage your nerves from taking too much ketamine. And the way I explain that to people, it's kind of like if you put fertilizer on your grass, if you put too much on, you're going to burn your grass. But if you put the right amount on, it supports its growth. And if you don't put enough on, it doesn't work. So in a recreational setting, if you don't know what dose you're getting, you may not get enough. You may get too much. And so it's it's risky and dangerous. And the FDA recently came out with a warning about people using what's called compounded ketamine, which means it's it doesn't uh, come from the pharmacy this way, but people make it and then... T- take it in recreational settings that can be very dangerous. They're recommending against people using it recreationally for that reason. Mm. Yeah. It's just like, it's just like, 
garage made versus right. like pharmacy made. It's it's like so many things. Um, methamphetamine is a prescription medicine for ADHD, um, but when people take it recreationally, it's often mixed with other chemicals that are very toxic and even damaging to the brain. So with ketamine, it's you have to be very careful, and I do not recommend recreational use by people who don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. It's very dangerous. And I think what's interesting about the ketamine is, you know, you've talked to me about the short half-life, right? And so right. it sounds like consistent reuse, but like strategic consistent use, because that excitotoxicity is interesting. Like if you, if you, if you do it over time, it builds new brain cells. But if you singe your brain, if you singe your brain cells, essentially by taking too much too fast, there's like, it's like the opposite effect. Right. So ketamine's half-life, which is a term that refers to how long it takes half the medicine to leave your system is relatively short. It's about a little over two hours. And in five half-lives or about 10 hours, it's totally out of your system. So um, by taking it once a week or once a month intravenously, you're getting a stimulation to the nervous system at that frequency. And then Uh, it wears off. With the daily sublingual ketamine, you're pulsing the nervous system daily to grow and to continue growing. And I believe that's one of the real advantages of the daily very low dose is it's constantly stimulating the nervous system to grow and repair and heal, as opposed to just giving it a a high dose less frequently. Okay. That makes sense to me. So one of the things that this connects with is other medicines that have a similar effect on the nervous system. And some researchers at University of California, Davis in Sacramento, have coined a new term they call psychoplastogens. And these are medicines that create changes in the structure and the function of neurons or nerve cells. Ketamine is the prototype, the original psychoplastogen, but the other medicines they found that have a similar effect, both on increasing BDNF and stimulating nervous system growth are primarily psychedelics like psilocybin, LSD, ayahuasca, even ecstasy or MDMA, which is not a true psychedelic, but each of those medicines also has the same properties of stimulating BDNF release and stimulating the nervous system to grow. So there are a lot of common pathways uh, in terms of how those medicines affect the nervous system also. That's incredible. And like, so I guess I go back to like the dare to not do drugs kind of thing. And like all these ideas that like all drugs are bad. And I think what's interesting is that you know, they've all been grouped into the same category, right? Marijuana, alcohol, caffeine, and then LSD and MDMA like in right. that same category with right. like meth and heroin, right? right? And so it's like, not all drugs are created equal. And it's what's interesting to me that you kind of explained to me earlier was that like, you know, marijuana and alcohol like kill brain cells or kill neurons, but like psilocybin and ketamine can actually build new brain cells. And so can you right. talk a little bit about that? And some of that is the dose too. We were taught in medical school, the only difference between a medicine and a poison is the dose. If you take too much of any medicine, it will do damage and will kill us if we ingest enough. Even water will kill us if we drink too much. So it's really important to understand the dosing with any medicine. And that's true with ketamine. It's true with psilocybin. It's true with um, antidepressants. Now, some medicines are much more lethal at lower doses. There's a, um, a range of how toxic medicines are, but psychedelics in general are extremely safe. It's very difficult to take enough of a psychedelic to kill you. Um, there are other risks with them, but um, this is usually not death. So yeah, so there are some medicines like these psychoplastogens, like ketamine, like psilocybin, for example, that can stimulate the nervous system to grow and repair and heal itself. There's even a recent example of a gentleman here in Colorado who was in an in, was injured and fractured nine vertebrae in his, in his uh, spine and was paralyzed from the chest down. 
And then he went to a concert and some friends gave him psilocybin and he started feeling the muscles in his legs firing again. Over time, he regained function. He's now able to mountain bike and ski. Um, and that raises the question, could these psychoplastogens help other people's spinal cord injuries or other neurologic damage? And what I've come to see is, yes, it can. Even my sister had been involved in a car accident 30 years ago. She was stopped at a red light and she was rear-ended by a car going 55 miles an hour. And it caused nerve damage in her left arm, the ulnar nerve, to the point that she couldn't feel her pinky finger or her ring finger on her left hand for 30 years. Even though she'd undergone surgery at one point to try to repair that nerve or heal it, it didn't work. When she was prescribed ketamine, um, she regained feeling in those two fingers after 30 years. So we know it repaired that nerve damage. Just 30 years. After 30 years of not feeling those two fingers, she can feel them again. And I'm hearing similar stories from other people, especially about peripheral neuropathy. I've had at least seven patients who I prescribed ketamine for, um, for depression, who came back and spontaneously reported, oh, by the way, my peripheral neuropathy is pain is much better or is gone. So these are people out of, again, I don't know how many people I have with peripheral neuropathy, but a large percentage of them are reporting improvement. So that raises the question, would other medicines like psilocybin have a similar effect? And I'm glad you brought that up because what's the, what's the difference? Like, so we know that psilocybin and ketamine both stimulate BDNF. Mm -hmm. We know that they both um, have like neuroregenerative effects, but, but what's the difference between them? And like, why would somebody want to consider ketamine versus psilocybin? Well, right now, the reason to consider ketamine is because it's legal and easily available and inexpensive when taken sublingually under the tongue at low doses. Psilocybin is still illegal. Um, so there are risks associated with it. There are a lot of clinical trials going on right now that show it's extremely effective at treating a wide range of psychiatric disorders. And hopefully it will become an improved medicine within the next couple of years. Um, and then it, we'll see. Then we need to do trials, head-to-head -head trials, where people, some people with the condition get psilocybin, some get ketamine to see which medicine is better for which conditions or which people. Those studies haven't been done yet. Okay. okay. They're not exactly alike, so we need to understand more about the differences between them, not just the similarities. Yeah. And what's the half-life of psilocybin? Do you I know? I don't know. Oh, okay. Because it feels like it's a lot more longer, but maybe that's just impression. Yeah. I don't know what the half-life is. I could look it up, but I do know the effects of psilocybin tend to last much longer than the effects of ketamine. So for example, sometimes people will get a single dose of psilocybin in a clinical trial for depression or anxiety, experience benefits that can last for months or years. Um, for example, for PTSD, there's studies showing that and MDMA also, that people take MDMA for PTSD, one single dose may uh, result in them not meeting criteria for PTSD any longer, and that can persist for years. So is that because there's some lasting physiologic or structural benefit of the medicine, or is it something psychological? We just don't know yet. Wow, that's cool stuff. I know, that's very cool. <laughs> All right. Anything else you want to say about this incredible topic? We this might this podcast might change the world. Well, I think these medicines have the potential to do a lot of good for a lot of people, um, and I think we're just scratching the surface. I don't think we understand yet how many different benefits they can provide. I think we're just beginning to look at some of these possibilities. I mean, there were studies done in uh, in lab lab experiments and in rodent experience with LSD back in the 1950s and 60s showing it helped with spinal cord injuries and nobody ever followed up on it. So now that these medicines are not being just uh, demonized and people are looking at them as medicines and studying them, they're finding that they can maybe do a lot of different things to help people, not just psychologically, but neurologically and even other diseases that we're 
just uh, again starting to consider. Okay. Okay. One, one last question. One last question. Okay. Can we talk about like the qualitative observations of the experience of the psychedelic experience when it comes to ketamine and um, psilocybin from like a perspective of separation of ego? Like, what's the benefits of like and and like what, is this self-reported? Is this like something that we can measure? And is and and what are the potential benefits? So that's a tricky one because that depends on the dose also. But yes, there are people um, with psychedelic medicines and with ketamine that describe what some people call dissociative effects or some people call transcendent effects where people are able to separate or detach from their ego, which is their normal way of thinking or seeing themselves, um, which can lead to profound effects. Um, that can happen acutely if people take a high dose. It can also happen over time when people take very low doses. For example, with the ketamine, I've had a, a few people starting to report that after they've been on it for months or a year, they're starting to have a different perspective on life. And it's shifting their relationships. It's helping them, their mood. It's shifting their uh, attitude about their lives. And it's similar to what is called the overview effect, which is something described by astronauts when they go out into space. And when some of these astronauts are out in space on the space shuttle or the space station looking back at the Earth, they see this tiny blue dot in this vast universe, and it has a profound effect on them, almost a transcendent or spiritual-like effect in terms of how they view their lives and their issues back on Earth. And that often persists even when they come back to Earth. People are starting to describe the same kinds of shifts following use of these psychoplastogens like ketamine and psilocybin. And sometimes that happens after a single dose. People can have a profound transformative experience such as in a study at UCLA where they used psilocybin to treat anxiety in people who were terminally ill with cancer. Most of those people who took a single dose of psilocybin reported not only a decrease in anxiety, but they no longer were afraid of death. It shifted their whole perspective on death. And we're seeing some of the same things with ketamine now, even when people take a low dose over time, is that people are seeing their entire lives differently. They're seeing them with less anxiety, less fear, less judgment, less self uh, pugilant thoughts where they're more accepting, more compassionate, and it gives them a whole different perspective on their lives and the lives of others. Wow. So that's a huge potential benefit. Ah, you are so cool. <laughs> no, <laughs> the medicines are though. The, they are, but the knowledge, the knowledge and like the information, this is so cool. Oh my gosh, dad, you are the best. Thank you so much for doing You're this. It's fun. This is so <laughs> fun to talk about. I hope it helps people. I, I hope so. Just scratch the surface. Hi, it's exciting to talk to you. Congratulations.